Good morning. Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at the end of that chapter going into chapter 3. As you're turning, I wanted to ask you this question. Have you ever had a visitor appear at your door when you least expected it? And if that has happened to you, what was that feeling like? You may have gone to the door on a Saturday morning, the doorbell rang or a knock on the door and you, you're taken off guard and you, you may have been in your pajamas or you may have been in those holy jeans and that worn t-shirt that you'd worn maybe the last two days. You may not have had a shower in the last day or so. And after you talked to your guest, you then shut the door and you were pretty embarrassed by what just happened. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Now, I want you to think about if the president of the United States came to your door unexpected. What would that be like? Well, that actually happened to somebody. It happened to somebody during the Eisenhower years. And Eisenhower was on vacation in Denver, Colorado. And there was a father and his son who were home on a Sunday afternoon. And the son was six years old. Uh, he had been diagnosed with cancer. He said, one of my, my wishes would be to, to meet the president one day. And Eisenhower got wind about this little boy's request. And so what he did was he made a surprise visit on a Sunday afternoon in Denver, Colorado while he was on vacation. The father went to the door and he sees his limousine and all these secret service agents. And here's the president. And the father was taken aback. He was in his worn out jeans and a holy t-shirt. And after talking to the president for a few minutes with his son, he shut the door and he said... What a way to meet the president. <laughs> now, I want you to think, what if Jesus came to your door unexpectedly? How would you react? How would you respond? That's what this passage is all about. It talks about the return of Christ, and we need to be prepared for his return. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, going into chapter 3, verse 3, this is God's holy word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. John begins this portion of his letter writing to his audience who were Christians in the town of Ephesus. And he's writing to us today, and he's asking the question, will you be prepared for when Jesus returns? He starts out in verse 28 by saying, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John was writing to this Christian audience. He was probably in his 80s, and that's why he calls them little children. He's not speaking down to them. He's, it's, an, it's a term of endearment, saying, I'm your spiritual grandfather and your spiritual father. And so I, I want you to be prepared. 
for when Jesus returns. I, I don't want you to shrink back in shame as if you're ashamed and caught off guard when he returns. But I want you to be fully engaged and prepared for when he does come. Because if you notice here, he mentioned when he appears twice in this section. In just these few verses, he says it twice. When he appears. It's not a matter of if Jesus will return. It's a matter of when Jesus will return. If you go through the New Testament, you'll see this common theme of the return of Jesus, the last days. It's mentioned 318 times throughout the New Testament. One in every 25 verses talk about the subject of the return of Christ. And so we know it's saturated throughout Scripture that Jesus will return, whether we're ready or not. As a father of four young kids, I play hide-and-seek a lot. Now, it's been a minute since we last played, right, kids? But, but I like playing hide-and-seek. And what I like about it is I like to be the seeker. I like to be the one who counts, does the countdown, and then uh, runs after those who are trying to hide. And it's always fun playing with my kids because I count to 20, and I hear their little feet running through the, the house. And I know almost every time where they are, you know, because <laughs> I can hear where they're going. Newsflash, kids, I know where you go. Um, but I, I hear where they go, and then they usually go to the same places, and I can usually find them. Every now and then, Abby might throw me off, or Katie might throw me off, but most of the time, I'll know where they go. But it's always fun to do that countdown to 20. And then the countdown starts, and then right at the end, what do you say in hide and seek? Ready or not, here I come. Well, my friends, the countdown has started. Are you ready, or are you not? Because he is coming we know it's inevitable the return of christ it will indeed happen and so the question i have for you this morning is are you prepared for when he does come are you ready and if you're not i i, I just want to remind you from this word that there are three things that we need to know in order to be prepared for his return we need to know who he is we need to know who we are and we need to know who we will be. How can we be confident when Jesus returns? Well, first we need to know who he is. And John mentions who he is in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Who is Jesus? He is the righteous one. The word righteous here, it means morally pure, morally upright. It means virtuous, one who is perfect. We know that Jesus is the perfect one. He is the righteous one. And because he is the righteous one, John mentioned in verse 28, we are to abide in him. The word abide, as I mentioned last week, it's, it's, it's said and written 27 times throughout this letter, abide. What does it mean? It means to remain it's an ongoing activity. It's an ongoing relationship that we are to have with the righteous one. Who is Jesus? He's perfect. He is God. And so in order for us to be prepared for his to re return, we need to know that he is God. We need to believe that. We need to trust that. And we need to abide in him. He abides in us when we become believers. And so the challenge John has for us is we are to remain in him just as he remains in us. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing good. 
We can do nothing good apart from Christ of spiritual value, of spiritual worth. And so the first thing in order for us to be prepared for when Jesus returns is we got to know who he is. And he is the righteous one. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The second thing we need to know is we need to know who we are. And I absolutely love verses 1 and 2 here. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. John just hammers this point home that we are loved. We are beloved. We are his children. And I like the NIV translation. See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we are indeed children of God, and that is what we are. He's, he's emphatic, saying, that is what you are, believer. You are a child of the king. So when he returns, we should run to him with excitement for him to embrace us as, his, as, as he's our father. We are his child. I think about, whenever I think about this analogy, I think about how a, a military member, when they're deployed for six, nine months to a year, and they come and they surprise their child or their children. And, and the kid doesn't know when, when their dad's coming home, for example. And the dad comes home and, and surprises the kid. And what does the kid do? They, they run to their father. And they embrace him. And he embraces them. Because they've missed him for so long. They didn't know when he was coming home. But they knew he was going to come. And when he came, he surprised them. And they ran to him. That's the picture we need to have as believers in Christ. That God is our father. We are his children. And when he comes, we need to run to him with confidence and embrace him as he would embrace us, as opposed to shrink back in shame as if we're caught off guard when he returns. And so the thing that will prepare us for when he returns is to know who we are. And yes, we are sinners. And yes, we are his children. We are beloved by our father. There are many people in this world who can't claim God as their father. They haven't been adopted into the Christian family. And they're wandering around aimlessly, lost, without hope. They're seeking to be forgiven. They're seeking love. They're looking for love in all the wrong places, but they haven't quite found true purpose until they have found Christ. And so they're wandering around this world aimlessly. There was a story many years ago of a, a father who was in Madrid, Spain, and his son was a rebellious teenager. And the son just got really frustrated with his mom and dad, and he decided to take matters in his own hands. And so he ran away from his mom and dad for, for several months. And so the parents were frantically searching and doing everything they could to find their rebellious teen who ran away. Finally, after about three months, the father, he went to the local newspaper and he ended up shelling out a bunch of money to put this ad in, on the front page of the paper. And he said, I'm desperate. I can't think of anything else to do. And so I'm going to write this ad in the paper calling my son to meet me. There were a lot of Pacos in Madrid, Spain back then. And he said, Paco, this is your father. I love you. I miss you. I forgive you. Please come home. And if you meet me, I will be in front of the newspaper office at 3 o'clock on Saturday. Paco, please come home and return to your parents. Well, three days had passed, and you wouldn't believe it. 
but 800 Pacos showed up that Saturday. 800. Now, the one showed up, and he embraced his father. But the 799, they didn't have a father that they could embrace. You think about that picture, and you think about the lost people in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our city, in this country, throughout the world. They're looking for love, but they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And they haven't quite found love. They haven't quite found forgiveness. And my friends, the only way you will find that true love, that true purpose, is Jesus Christ. And until you find him, you will not know the Father. Because in order for us to know God the Father, we have to know the Son. We have to know the Son. So again, who are you? Are you a child of the King, the Father? Or are you one of those Pacos wandering aimlessly, looking to be forgiven by someone? So how can we be prepared for the return of Christ? We need to know who he is. He's the righteous one. We need to know who we are as believers. We're children of the King. But we also need to know who we will become. Who will we be when he comes? Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What is John saying here? He's saying that Jesus hasn't yet appeared, but when he does appear, we're going to be like him, and we're going to see him for who he really is, because we're going to change when he returns. What he's getting at here is, when Jesus does come back, we're going to change. Our appearance and our bodies will change. We'll have a new glorified body, a resurrected body, a spiritual body that is going to be unlike what we have today in our natural bodies. What I want you to do is, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's one of the best passages that talks about our spiritual body, our heavenly body, when Jesus returns and what it will look like. And it's going to be pretty lengthy, so don't fall asleep. Stay with me. Hang in there and really try to understand what Paul was getting at when he wrote these words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll begin with verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So, it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There is a lot here. What was Paul getting at? Well, I'm going to say it this way. A few weeks ago, we were watching our annual Christmas movies that we watch. And I've mentioned before, one of our favorite movies is Elf. Well, I was, just a few weeks ago, during the Christmas season, I was going through my news feeds, and I came across an article that piqued my, my interest. And it was, the article was, where the actors and actresses are from Elf 20 years later. And I thought, this is interesting. What are they going to look like? What are they going to be? And you wouldn't believe it, but when I went through this article, my eyes were open. I didn't recognize some of those actors and actresses. And it's only been 20 years. For example, Will Ferrell, the character elf, his, 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 uh, his earthly father, and then his elf father, they're pretty unrecognizable now, and it's just been 20 years. As I thought about that example, I thought about me, and I, I, I look back 20 years ago, and I'm telling you, my friends, I used to have six-pack abs. I don't have that anymore. <laughs> Whenever I try to do sit-ups, it hurts. You know why I wear glasses a lot more now? It's because I'm getting dry eyes. I'm getting older. We're all getting older. Every day we get older. And that's the whole point Paul is making. Our natural body, our earthly bodies, they, they waste away. We get wrinkles. They wear down. But here's where he's getting at. We can get so excited because our heavenly body will not waste away. It will not weigh down. It's going to be glorified. It will be a glorious Body. And I like how Paul mentioned in Philippians 3, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What a great passage. We await our citizenship, our heavenly home, which is in heaven. Jesus will transform our lowly earthly bodies into a heavenly body that is going to be like his so when he appears, we're going to be like him. That's amazing stuff to think about. And that's exactly what he wrote, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I like what Jonathan Edwards said about this. He said, grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. Grace is glory begun. We're starting to get a glimmer of hope as, as the Lord has changed us here on this earth. But yet glory is grace completed one day Grace will be completed, and that's when glory will take place forever. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people over the years, they've asked me this question. I always find it interesting to, to have these, these conversations with them. But they'll ask me, hey, Seth, what do you think this body's going to look like? You know, how old are we going to appear in heaven? Uh, what's it going to be like? And I'll just be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I really don't know. But scholars have debated this for hundreds of years, what this body will be like. There's a group of people that have said, whenever we're in heaven and we get this new body, we're all going to be in our 20s and 30s. Now, how nice would that be, you know? <laughs> 20s and 30s, that's the best shape of your life, that's when you're the best looking. And some people have said that. There's a pastor named Hank Hanegraaff. He said this. He said, our DNA is programmed in such a way that at a particular point, we reach optimal development from a functional perspective. For the most part, it appears that we reach this stage somewhere in our 20s and 30s, 
If the blueprints for our glorified bodies are in the DNA, then it would stand to reason that our bodies will be resurrected at the optimal stage of development determined by our DNA. So that's one theory. That'd be interesting. Wouldn't that be nice if all of us are in our 20s and 30s in heaven? That'd be great. I'm not so sure that's the case. Others have said that we will appear ageless. Many of you know who C.S. Lewis was or is. Uh, he, he wrote in The Great Divorce, he said, No one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. One gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless, heavy thought in the face of an infant, and frolic childhood in that of a very old man. What C.S. Lewis is writing about is he's writing about heaven, and he's saying we're all going to appear ageless in heaven. So whether we appear in our 20s or 30s in this glorified body, or whether we appear ageless, I don't know. I don't really think it matters. Because do you know what matters? What matters is, is that we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with him for eternity. So what makes heaven so special? It's not the street of gold that we read about, although that's pretty neat. It's not that we're going to be reunited with our, our grandmother or grandfather, although that will be nice. It's not even that we're going to be able to meet some of these heroes of the faith that we've always dreamed of meeting. What makes heaven so incredible is we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with the man who walked on water. We're going to be with the man who calmed the storm. We're going to be with the man who raised people from the dead. We're going to be with the man who was risen from the grave himself. We're going to be with the man who created this world. We're going to walk with him. We're going to eat with him. We're going to talk with him. We're going to be with Jesus. And if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. Does that excite you? It excites me. We're going to see God face to face in Jesus Christ. How amazing is that going to be? We're all going to be blown away. Again, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what else will. When I was in seminary, I'll never forget this. I had a professor, and he wasn't being very nice to me one day. No, he was just messing with me. But we were talking about this very thing. And he knew I was engaged to Stephanie. He knew we had been engaged, and I was so excited about our wedding day. He knew we were just three months away from getting married. And this professor asked me this question, and I'll never forget. And I was just like, that's just mean. He said, Seth, if Jesus came today, would you be excited? You know what I told him? It took me a minute. And I said, you know, if I had to be honest with you, I said, I would really like for him to come six months from now. Because I've always wanted to get married. We've been planning this wedding day. We, we, we're excited to have all of our friends and family. We're going to have this wedding day. We're going to go on the honeymoon. I really just want to be with my wife for three months at least. And then he could come. And the professor laughed. He said, I figured that's what you were thinking. And he, he said, but Seth, your greatest days on this earth will not even compare to a single day in heaven. You should be more excited about being with Jesus and about heaven than your greatest days on this earth. Boy, was I convicted that day. But he's right. He's right. We all have good days. We all have really bad days on this side of heaven. But those really good days, 
they will pale in comparison, not even compare to one single day in heaven. So that, my friends, should fill you with confidence. It should fill you with hope. It should fill you with excitement. So how can we be fully prepared for his return? We know, we need to know who he is. We need to know who we are. We need to know who we, who we will be, who we will, who we will become. And because we know all these things, it should dramatically affect how we live today and tomorrow and the next day on this earth. You know, I've read a lot of end times books. I've read a lot of end times passages in the scriptures. And very rarely do I come across a book when a pastor or a theologian talks about the end times. Very rarely do I hear them talk about how the end times should impact us today. Most of the time, pastors and theologians will talk about what, what, it'll, what, what it'll be like in the end and when Jesus will return and, and how he's going to return. But very rarely do you hear a, a pastor or a, or a theologian say, what does this mean for you and me today? John answers that question in verse 3. He said, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is saying that my future impacts my life today. If we are to be like Christ in heaven in the future, we should be like him now. We should strive to be like him now. We're not going to be perfect. None of us will ever be perfect until we reach heaven. We're all sinners. We all mess up. But what John is getting at here is he's saying, but still strive for holiness, strive to be good, strive to be like Christ because he is pure, so be pure. You know what the word pure means? It means to be free from contamination. John is saying Jesus is free from contamination. There's not any, any spot or wrinkle or blemish or sin in him. And because we want to be like him, let's strive to be pure. Again, we can't do it apart from the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we can do good. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. But the more and more you understand that grace, the more you'll realize how sweet it is. And how you can't do anything without him. But as you rely upon him, as you abide and remain in him, then you will begin to walk in step with the Spirit. You'll begin to be more like Christ and you'll begin to make an impact in your family, in your neighborhoods, in your community, throughout the world. So as we prepare for the end times, for Jesus' return, we should be confident and it also should dramatically impact what you do now as you wait for him. There was a, a teenage girl and she was going out with her friends one night. And they ended up uh, just getting, things got out of hand. And she didn't know. Uh, she went to her friend's house and they drove her there. And, and, and they started drinking underage. They started smoking marijuana. And they, they went over and handed her the cup. And she said, you know, I'm not going to drink that. And they said, why not? And they said, I, I, don't, I just don't know. And what, what about smoking this? You want to try that? She said, no, I just don't want to do it. In fact, I, I'm not feeling good about this. Can somebody just take me home? And when she said that, all of her friends started making fun of her. They started laughing at her. They started mocking her. Why aren't you doing this too? Everybody else is doing this. This is what teenagers do. Let's live it up. Let's have fun. And one boy mocked her and he said, oh, 
Are you afraid that your daddy's going to hurt you when he finds out? You know what she said to him? She said, I'm not afraid that my dad's going to hurt me. I'm more concerned that I'm going to hurt him. That should be our perspective. Our perspective as children of the Lord, of God, is that we don't need to be worried about him just hurting us. Yes, there are consequences to our sins. We need to be more concerned about pleasing him. That's the point John's making here. As you think about his return, think about pleasing the Lord. We know in scripture that we can grieve the Holy Spirit by the way we live our lives. So again, are you pleasing the Lord and are you seeking to please him? Or are you living life on your own, doing your own thing? So my question again is, are you prepared for his return? Because the countdown has started. And are you ready or are you not?